Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 27th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The United States Supreme Court unanimously overturned a Washington State workers' compensation law that was designed for federal contractors working at a nuclear waste site in that state. Washington State enacted the workers' compensation law that applied only to certain workers at a federal facility in the state who were engaged in the performance of work, either directly or indirectly, for the United States government. The facility, known as the Hanford Site, was once used by the federal government to develop and produce nuclear weapons and is now undergoing a complex decontamination process. Most workers involved in this cleanup process are federal contract workers, people employed by private companies under contract with the federal government. The Washington state law makes it easier for federal contract workers at Hanford to establish their entitlement to workers' compensation, thus increasing workers' compensation costs for the federal government. The United States brought suit against Washington, arguing that Washington's law violates the Supremacy Clause of the United States Constitution by discriminating against the federal government. The United States asserts that a ruling in its favor will allow it to recoup or avoid paying millions of dollars in workers' comp claims. But the district trial court judge disagreed and concluded that the law was constitutional because it fell within the scope of a federal waiver of immunity contained in the United States Code. And then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that finding. However, in a unanimous 9-0 opinion, the Supreme Court of the United States reversed in the case of United States versus Washington. The U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution as prohibiting states from interfering with or controlling the operations of the federal government. This constitutional doctrine, often called the Intergovernmental Immunity Doctrine, has evolved to bar state laws that either regulate the United States directly or discriminate against the federal government or its contractors. Washington's law violates these principles by singling out the federal government for unfavorable treatment. Their law explicitly treats federal workers differently than the state or private workers and imposes costs upon the federal government that state and private entities do not bear. The law thus violates the Supremacy Clause unless Congress has consented to such regulation through waiver, which it has not. And in employment law, the Court of Appeal concluded that a supervisor's diverse practices do not automatically rule out a public attorney general action, class action, filed against an employer for wage and hour violations. In this case, Dave Meza filed a consolidated class action lawsuit against Pacific Bell. He alleged Pacific Bell violated California law by failing to provide lawful meal and rest periods and 
failing to provide lawful itemized wage statements, among other labor code violations. Mesa appealed four trial court orders. One of them was the class certification order, an order denying class certification to five meal and rest period classes. The Court of Appeal reversed the trial court and did certify the class in the partially published case of Mesa versus Pacific Bell Telephone Company. The Court of Appeal concluded that the trial court erred in refusing to certify the meal and rest period classes based on its conclusion that common issues do not predominate throughout the class. The order denying class certification dealt with an often litigated class certification issue. Whether supervisors' diverse practices with respect to uniform written policies makes class certification inappropriate. The trial court held that individualized issues predominated because the manager's declarations indicated that the actual management practices of Pacific Bell supervisors resulted in a diverse application of the company's premises technician guidelines. The 2012 California Supreme Court case of Brinker Restaurant Corporation versus Superior Court dealt with the issue of uniform corporate policies as a basis for class certification. The progeny of Brinker has dealt more directly with the question of class certification based on uniform policies that are allegedly applied by corporate managers in different ways, and this has proved to be a tricky issue for the courts. Cases following Brinker have concluded that when a court is considering the issue of class certification and is assessing whether common issues predominate over individual issues, the court must focus on the policy itself and address whether the plaintiff's theory as to the illegality of the policy can be resolved in a class-wide basis. Here, the trial court did not apply the proper legal framework when it denied class certification. Mesa's theory of liability was that the written guidelines for premises technicians were for the benefit of Pacific Bell and exerted substantial control over the premises technicians during their meal and rest periods in violation of the law. Although the trial court acknowledged that the policies are undisputed, it concluded that the disparate manner in which employees experience the policy through different managers rendered the claims unsuitable for class treatment. However, the employer's liability arises by adopting a uniform policy that violates the wage and hour laws. The fact that individual inquiry might be necessary to determine whether individual employees were able to make, take breaks despite the defendant's alleged unlawful policy is not a proper basis for denying certification. And now our crime report. Dr. Gary Royce Wisner was a board-certified orthopedic surgeon practicing as Orthopedics Sports and Workers Medical Group, Incorporated, in Lodi, California. He was licensed to practice medicine in California, Alabama, and Nevada. 
He claims to be affiliated with Adventist Health Lodi Memorial, St. Joseph's Medical Center, and Dameron Hospital. In 2016, representatives from the California Department of Justice, Division of Medi-Cal Fraud, and Elder Abuse were notified by multiple government offices of suspected fraud in his overbilling the medical, Medi-Cal and Medicare programs. Their investigation into Dr. Wisner's alleged misconduct revealed he would administer x-rays even in routine office visits and would x-ray multiple parts of a patient's body regardless of whether it had any relation to a patient's medical condition. A grand jury indicted him on 11 felony counts of insurance fraud in 2018 for bilking insurers out of more than $700,000 for providing unnecessary and excessive medical treatment for orthopedic patients. In addition to the criminal case, the Attorney General filed a 31-page accusation before the Medical Board of California seeking a revocation of his medical license. The accusation alleged gross negligence in a separate cause for each of eight of his patients. Three of them were being treated for work-related injuries. The accusation, in essence, claimed that he committed gross negligence in his care and treatment when he obtained excessive, non-medically necessary, and repeated x-rays of remote areas unrelated to the place of injury. The accusation to revoke his license is still pending, and Dr. Wisner is still licensed to practice medicine in California. And this month, the California Attorney General announced securing a guilty verdict in the criminal case following a two-week jury trial in Sacramento County Superior Court. Wisner was convicted on 10 felony counts of health care insurance fraud. The Attorney General's announcement reports that Wisner is also a subject of an independent criminal complaint filed by the San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office for workers' compensation fraud, and that case is still pending. This investigation was made possible through a collaboration with the United States Department of Health and Human Services, the San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office, and the California Department of Insurance. The California Employment Development Department announced it has recovered $1.1 billion in fraudulent unemployment insurance funds. The recovered funds were located on approximately 780,000 inactivated benefit cards. Most of the recovered funds will be returned to the federal government because the fraudulent claims are from the Emergency Federal Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which was the primary target of fraud nationwide. In July 2021, California hired McGregor Scott as the EDD Fraud Special Counsel. Scott aids the state's work with law enforcement to combat fraud, including supporting state, federal, and local investigations and prosecutions. Working with the EDD, he has leveraged his experience to deliver leads and evidence to aid prosecutions and strengthen ongoing investigations. Scott stated that he will continue working with law enforcement to put fraudsters behind bars 
and recover every stolen dollar that he can. Today's billion-dollar recovery furthers the effort of EDD and the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services to investigate and prosecute criminals who defrauded federal emergency unemployment benefit programs. Other actions California has taken to strengthen its fraud fighting include stopping over $125 billion in attempted fraud by deploying a new identity verification system with ID.me in 2020, and working with the Bank of America to issue chip-enabled debit cards that enhance security and to strengthen fraud prevention strategies. EDD is also working with the California Office of Emergency Services Fraud Task Force on over a thousand active investigations, arrests, and prosecutions across California. And they are creating law enforcement investigative guides and offering technical assistance to law enforcement partners who are working fraud investigation cases. State officials reported 1,525 cases investigated, 467 arrests, 162 convictions, and $3.47 million seized in the last 15 months. And in regulatory news, the National Council on Compensation Insurance has just published its Workers' Compensation Presumptions Update, Five Things You Need to Know Insights Report. Two years after the start of the pandemic, COVID-19 continues to be an important topic for workers' compensation. 18 states, including California, established COVID-19 presumptions by way of legislation, directives, emergency rules, and executive orders. Two additional states, Tennessee and Washington, established a more general infectious disease presumption. Most of the COVID-19 workers' compensation presumptions contain expiration dates or sunset provisions. Several states that enacted presumptions are considering legislation to extend the expiration date of the presumption to a later date and may be expanding the COVID-19 presumptions to additional categories of workers. California AB 1751 would extend the expiration date for the COVID-19 presumption from January 1, 2023 to January 1, 2025. This bill passed the Assembly and is under consideration in the California Senate. Five states proposed legislation to create workers' compensation presumptions that could be applicable beyond the current COVID-19 pandemic. These types of proposals may specifically mention COVID-19, but also contain terms such as infectious disease, COVID-19 or similar disease, or the words other future qualifying pandemic. And some of them may not include sunset provisions or expiration dates. California SB 213 would establish a workers' compensation presumption for infectious and respiratory diseases, both defined to include COVID-19 for certain hospital employees. And this California proposal does not include an expiration date. 
Several states still have a COVID-19 or infectious disease presumption in effect as of June 1, 2022. And the current California presumptions expire on January 1, 2023 unless extended. The full NCCI report on this topic can be read online by visiting its website. And in medical news, America's labyrinthine health industrial complex consumes 17% of our gross domestic product, equivalent to $3.6 trillion a year. The American system's heft and inertia is perpetuated by the drug makers, pharmacies, insurers, hospitals, and others that benefit from it, all of which have long protected it from any disruption. But its size and stodginess also explains why it's being covetously eyed by big tech. Few other industries offer a potential market large enough to move the needle for the trillion-dollar technology titans. In a report titled, Alphabet is Spending Billions to Become a Force in Healthcare, The Economist reports that Google's parent company, Alphabet, is spending billions of dollars to become a major player in the healthcare market. Between 2019 and 2021, Alphabet's venture capital divisions, Google Ventures, Gradient Ventures, and Capital G, have made almost 100 deals in the life sciences and healthcare industry. The Economist writes that so far this year, Alphabet has injected $1.7 billion into future health ideas, leaving its fellow tech giants far behind their initiative. Alphabet is the fifth highest-ranking business in the Nature Index, which measures the impact of scientific papers in the life sciences behind four giant drug makers. And Alphabet is 20 places ahead of Microsoft, the only other tech giant in the running. The company has hired former senior health regulators to help navigate America's healthcare bureaucracy. Alphabet, Alphabet Health has dabbled in health since 2008, when Google introduced a service that allowed users to compile their health records in one place. That project was set da- shut down in 2012 and then relaunched in 2018 as Google Health, which included Google's other health ventures, but it was scrapped again last year. Today's Alphabet's health initiatives can be divided into four broad categories. These are wearables, health records, health-related artificial intelligence, and the ultimate challenge of increasing human longevity. But Amazon launched an online pharmacy and telemedicine service almost everywhere in the United States. And then last year, Amazon announced the expansion of Amazon Care, which dispenses high-quality medical care and advice 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, with the goal of delivering the service through companies of all sizes to their employees nationwide. This move has broader implications for the healthcare industry. One of the chief impacts is that it brings a company with a brand name recognition into an emerging marketplace 
of medical care solutions aimed at helping employers reduce health care costs. Employers are ripe for services that can help reduce, reduce their health care expenditures, which is the second biggest line item on the balance sheet following salaries. The economic lever that Amazon is tackling is overuse of the emergency room and urgent care centers. By providing a mechanism to engage with employees early in the care-seeking process, individuals are directed to the most appropriate and cost-effective level of care, thereby saving employers money. And startups that have gained traction in this space include Dispatch Health and Heal, which offer in-person and virtual services, as well as 98.6 and Bowie, which provide triage and healthcare services. The big race is who can add diagnostic testing to these platforms, providing a full end-to-end on-demand healthcare platform. Although COVID-19 cases in the U.S. have plateaued, the Workers' Compensation Research Institute anticipates that the utilization of telemedicine will remain at levels higher than pre-pandemic levels. Multiple legislative actions at the federal and state level are being debated in order to streamline the process of delivering medical services by way of telemedicine and regulate the reimbursement for those services. For these reasons, the utilization and prices of medical services delivered by telemedicine remain important measures to monitor in the workers' compensation space. A new WCRI, WCRI flashboard, flash report focuses on two types of medical services with the most prevalent use of telemedicine. Those are evaluation and management, or E&M, and physical medicine services. The report investigates the patterns of telemedicine utilization among these services and workers' compensation during the first five quarters of the pandemic across 28 different states. It also examines the actual prices paid for the most frequent services delivered by telemedicine versus in-person across the study states. This report is based on a sample of workers' compensation claims for private sector workers and local public employers from these states, including California. The study states represent 79% of the workers' compensation benefits paid nationwide. This report can be viewed on the Workers' Compensation Research Institute website. And in other industry news, Samuel Hale LLC is an employer carve-out organization, or ECO, which it says protects California businesses from excessive and unpredictable employment costs due to fraud and litigation. A labor code carve-out is a provision of workers' compensation reform legislation. Carve-outs were created by the Department of Workers' Compensation to allow approved entities to handle their claim disputes through Alternative Dispute Resolution, also known as ADR, instead of the overburdened court system. 
ADR comp claims get settled quickly and employees get their money faster, while insurers can avoid the staggering cost of the slow legal system. Samuel Hale employs more than 10,000 employees in California, and its revenues grew by 593% between 2018 and 2021. According to the Sacramento Business Journal, they, they are one of 24 California-based companies that are part of Incorporated 5000's list of the fastest-growing private companies in America. Samuel Hale was approved by the state of California under Labor Code Section 3201.7 to conduct business under this provision, which allows an employer to form a Labor Management Alternative Workers' Compensation Program known as the Carve-Out. The company just announced that it will insure its $50, insure its $50 million workers' compensation risk through an insurance captive fronted by A-plus rated Arch Insurance. The Samuel Sale CEO said that the company has been working toward this for the last six years. The captive arrangement will enable it to maximize the advantages of its carve-out agreement, which drives the economics of the business. California has a very high litigation rate on workers' compensation insurance claims relative to the rest of the country. According to the WCIRB, California spends as much money on the frictional costs associated with litigation as it does in wage reimbursement to injured workers, making it one of the most expensive states in the U.S. for workers' compensation premium. This captive gives Samuel Hale a 10-year horizon, which creates long-term stability for its customers. They say they now have maximum control over their program and can deploy the best cost containment services based on specific needs. They say not much will change for its customers in terms of service, and Samuel Hale clients will maintain their current rates. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.